welcome to the second edition of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast. In this series, I'll be joined by highly esteemed academics and industry leaders to discuss themes and topics pertaining to each of the crisis simulations that our 70 delegates are eagerly waiting to tackle. In this episode, I am joined by some great guests in the field of space. Joining me today is Dr. Cassandra Steer, Duncan Blake, and Adam Gilmore. Dr. Cassandra Steer is a mission specialist with the ANU Institute of Space and a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law specializing in space law, space security, and international law. Dr. Steer has previously held positions as the acting executive director of the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Ethics and Rule of Law and executive director of the McGill Center for Research in Air and Space Law. Dr. Steer was also the former executive director of Women in International Security in Canada. Thanks for being here, Cassandra. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Duncan Blake was a legal officer for the Royal Australian Air Force for 22 years. He served as a Deputy Director of Operations and International Law for the Australian Department of Defence, providing operations and international law advice to the highest levels in both defence and government. Duncan was also the legal advisor to the Defence Space Coordination Office, and he chaired the Interdepartmental and International Working Groups in respect of strategic law. Duncan has authored numerous articles, one of which was awarded the 2011 Lieber Society Military Prize by the American Society of International Law, and is also the managing editor for a project to draft a Romero manual on international law applicable to military space activities. Although Duncan continues to do some work for defense in a reserve capacity, he speaks with us in his academic capacity and asks us to emphasize that nothing he says should be taken as representing the official position of defense or any particular part of the Australian government. Thanks for being here, Duncan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Adam Gilmore is the current CEO of Gilmore Space Technologies, an Australian space agency aiming to develop and launch low-cost launch vehicles for small satellites. Adam's confidence in his mission to make rockets cheaper and faster to manufacture has amassed his reputation as a leading industry leader in Australia's furthering endeavours into space. After building a successful career in finance in Singapore, Adam changed course and pursued his passion for space. At first, Gilmore Space developed high-quality space flight simulators and now sets a goal for the launch of its first commercial orbital vehicle, the Ares, in 2022. Thanks for joining us here today, Adam. All good. Happy to participate. Alrighty. So, I think it'd be really good to kind of um, start off the conversation having this dual understanding of between the private sector and also through academia as well what space security actually is, you know, what's what, but also how important space is to just everyday life, to civilian capabilities, also to national security as well. So Cassandra, do you want to start this conversation off? Yeah. I mean, I guess the starting point is why space is so important to us and to our 21st century lives. You know, we use space on a daily basis without even thinking about it. So when you're checking the weather to see what clothes to wear today, but also when that's being done for more critical things like um, aviation navigation and flight safety, uh, for 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 fishing boats, for shipping, you know, weather is very important. You use uh, precision navigation and timing based on satellites every time you use your ATM card or your credit card. Uh, if you have shares on the stock market, that's based on precision timing. We use it for search and rescue, for tracking bushfires, for telecommunications. Um, it is just so critical to our daily lives that we often don't realize. And then on top of that, there's all of these uh, really important applications for military activities, again, navigation and communications, weapons guidance, tracking the movement of one's own troops and those of adversaries, you know, thinking also of troops who go on deployment and need to communicate with their families at home. So space is, is so integrated into our lives without us necessarily realizing it which is why space security is so important as well. When we see pressures put on the space environment becoming very congested with a lot of space traffic and an enormous amount of space debris, uh, and when we see the geopolitics uh, of space, which really are just geopolitics on Earth being played out in another domain, the, the, um, the security pressures being placed on space as well could have an impact on us all. Don't go on about yourself. Um, yes, everything that Cassandra said, uh, but um, I'll add some numbers to that in terms of con congestion. So um, between 1957 and 2017, there were something like 11,000 satellites that have ever been launched. Uh, and yet in the next 10 years, possibly there could be as many as 100,000 satellites to give you an idea of the level of congestion. And that's the physical congestion. But then those satellites also need to communicate with the ground, 
possibly with each other, and that implies use of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so there's congestion there as well. Um, and there's, there's different ways in which um, space can be contested, uh, just to give some specifics around those sorts of things as well. So kinetic hit-to-kill missiles, um, cyber weapons, electronic warfare, directed energy, satellites grappling each other, um, high-altitude nuclear detonations causing electromagnetic pulses. There's there's a number of possibilities in which they could be con contested. And then there's also competition because, you know, it's becoming a, a burgeoning industry, which is is fantastic, and I'm sure we'll get into that about why, why it is so fantastic, and we've already touched on that to some extent. But there are dangers in unbridled, competition in terms of congestion and in terms of um, the fact that that is something that could lead to conflict as well. Mm. So it sounds as though this whole idea of um, congestion in space is very multifaceted and it kind mm. of goes across multiple due to spectrums. Yes. And we'll, I'll love to unpack that in, um, in later discussions. Adam, how about yourself? How important is space, especially from your perspective as well, especially coming from the private sector as well? Sure. I think uh, Cassandra said it well. Um, there's a really, really long list. You know, sometimes I like to think of, you know, how often I use space. So I'll give an example. Um, you know, I woke up this morning, wanted to go for a walk with my wife and she said, um, you know, what's the temperature? So I quickly checked the temperature. I'm getting that from satellite data. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to hang the clothes out in the afternoon and you check if it's going to rain. You know, a lot of that stuff comes from satellite data. You want to drive somewhere. I mean, you can't do it. I'm in lockdown now, but theoretically to get a coffee that you've never been to before, you whack on Google Maps, that's using satellite data. You know, you're looking for a new house to buy or a place to live and you look at Google Maps to see what the nearest park is. That's a satellite image. You, know, you just continually use it. And then a lot of industries use satellites extensively. Um, and what's more, more and more is, you know, the farming industry We've got technology in Australia that can tell a farmer how much um, fertilizer you know she has on a on, on a property, and instead of having to refertilize the whole paddock, she can just refertilize the third of it, which is missing. You know, we can detect uh, surface temperatures, you know, vegetative states, you know, whether the plants are healthy or not. Do they need more water? Um, and then, you know, disaster management. Uh, another thing I like to talk about is there's these technology devices called um, uh, ELTs. They're like emergency radio transmitters and they rely on the, on the satellite network. And Australia has the highest absolute usage of these devices of any other country. I think we're just such a remote place and, you know, there's so many people that go out into the, in the beyond and are in the ocean that, you know, we use more of these than any other country, not on a per capita basis, on an absolute basis. Yeah, Jack, if I may, I mentioned two other things. Um, and just one is a point of emphasis because I know this is about the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit um, and the importance of, uh, of space capabilities in respect of disaster response, for example, um, in, in remote areas and in areas where communications infrastructure, terrestrially based uh, communications infrastructure is no longer there. In understanding the, the scale of the disaster, um, Earth observation satellites are particularly important. The other thing that I wanted to mention is, is there's a risk of underemphasizing space science. So things that are not necessarily or overtly focused on planet Earth itself are nevertheless important because, um, you know, in, in, in an age of more awareness of climate change, I think it's important to understand how to live sustainably on this planet. Mm. And understanding how to live sustainably on this planet means understanding this planet and its place in the universe. And I think you pretty much like hit the nail on the head because I was going to try and bring it all together with the other two themes of the summit, Asia-Pacific security and climate change security, as well as um, foreign interference and, and cybersecurity. And one of the examples of what's going to give us about climate change as well, of how mm. important it is for us, you know, risk mitigation um, and also for um, calculating risks associated with these climate change, especially for our next door neighbors in, in the Pacific and all that as well. So I think we've pretty much established that um, space is most important <laughs> aspect for us as a society to kind of 
live essentially in the way that we do. The next part I want to kind of talk about is, um, especially for Cassandra and for Duncan, both of you, uh, I kind of want to talk about um, the Australian government's approach to the space sector and especially for us as well as a nation, we're a bit of a middle power ourselves, but how do we fare as a space nation comparative to the rest of the world? How are we for ourselves as well, considering the fact that we rely so heavily on space as well? Uh, well, I, I will try starting. Um, there used to be uh, up-to-date statistics about the number of space data, uh, space startups in Australia. Um, a couple of years ago, it was at least 100. I, I imagine now it's probably um, several hundred. Uh, some of the other, you know, Cassandra or, or Adam may have more up-to-date details about that. So that that's pretty significant. Um, Australia has been involved in the space domain from the beginning. Uh, the Woomera area in South Australia was uh, somewhere where we participated with the US and UK in the development of a lot of space technology. Um, Adam's already mentioned about how important it is for Australia as a nation with a lot of remote areas. And so it is something that Australia has been engaged in for quite some time. In, in a governance context, we've also been uh, very engaged as well in, in the international community. But I might just leave that there and, and um, Cassandra or Adam can jump in as well. Yeah, so I've written various commentaries uh, and a policy paper recently about um, Australia as a middle space power. So we're a middle power. We find ourselves in a multilateral, uh, multipolar reality in, in this point of the 21st century. Uh, and so middle powers have become really important players in every single sector. We have a lot more to say because we can balance the greater powers and because we can form um, different kinds of blocks and alliances around different kinds of issues. Uh, and space is starting to be on the agenda across the board, not just when we're thinking about actual applications or uses of space, but when we're thinking about economic cooperation, um, security arrangements and alliances, even responses to COVID. Um, the, the G7 recently, just a couple of months ago, put space debris on its agenda and acknowledged that this is a problem for all of us politically today. And so Australia has a really huge opportunity as a middle power, as a space middle power, to be taking a bit more of a lead, I think, on issues like long-term sustainability. So dealing with these issues of space debris and space traffic management, the congestion that, that Duncan and, and I were talking about before. Um, there are some, there are, you know, we're doing some work. So there are some people in DFAT, for instance, who do some really important space diplomacy work around um, the long-term sustainability guidelines that were adopted by a UN body called the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Those guidelines were adopted in 2019 and now DFAT and the Space Agency have that on the agenda in terms of how we're we going to implement requirements if we are licensing new activities in space, implementing requirements around debris mitigation and, and what kind of design you're going to have about your satellite, what are you going to do at the end of its life. Um, DFAT has also done some very important work around um, space arms control. So we can get into more detail about that, but there have been stops and starts over the decades. You know, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which is our cornerstone treaty for space activities, prohibits the placement of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons in orbit around Earth. Um, it prohibits the placement of military bases on the moon or on other celestial bodies, natural bodies in space. And it says that the moon and those celestial bodies have to be used for exclusively peaceful purposes. But there is a consensus and has been since the 1960s that military activities in general, as long as they are not aggressive, are lawful. So as long as you're not starting a war using space, it's okay. Um, and there's nothing else said about other types of weapons. So the kinds of weapons that, that Duncan um, mentioned at the, the beginning, the kinds of threats that we are seeing to space systems, some of which are not even kinetic, None of that is is regulated or prohibited in the Outer Space Treaty. So there have been stops and starts. There's basically not a huge willingness by most of the international community to enter into new arms control treaties. And so there have been different kinds of initiatives. A very important one came out in October last year, which was the UN General Assembly Resolution 7536, which is about reducing space threats through norms, principles and rules on, uh, on responsible behaviours in space, so focusing on behaviours rather than weapons or technologies. And Australia played a very important role in 
sponsoring and, you know, and pushing for states to vote for that and adopt it. But we didn't get much international credit for that. The UK got a lot of international credit. They were the ones who sponsored it in the first place, who did most of the work of drafting it. The UK is showing up as an excellent space diplomat at the moment in a lot of different areas around space debris as well. Australia just doesn't provide enough resources um, or human power into that diplomatic work. We just don't. There's basically two people in DFAT doing that work. You know, there's basically one person in the space agency who's trying to do that work along with a bunch of other stuff. We don't provide enough resources or priority to that. So we could be a very effective space middle power. Space is on our agenda. We are giving it priority in terms of saying we want to grow jobs, we want to grow the industry, but we need to give it much more priority and resources across the government if we're going to be an effective space middle power. Yeah, of course. And I think, yeah, um, in, in our discussions later on, we're going to talk about the future of Australia as a space nation. And it sounds like what you're alluding to is Australia's capacity. Obviously, we're not going to be, you know, like the United States of America. Where we're going to have, you know, our own NASA launching satellites every second day or something like that. But our role as a middle power, like you said, to um, uh, to be a space diplomat, essentially, and kind of keep everyone else in check almost and just being the mediator between a whole range of um, different actors and states com- considering our, you know, um, close connections with with China, with America as well. And with other middle powers. So we have mm. really excellent space collaboration with Japan, for instance. Yep. We supported the return of the Hayabusa, which was their, um, their spacecraft that went and gathered um, samples from an asteroid, you know, um, with Germany, with, um, with, with France, with Canada. So there are other middle powers, the UK, that that we already have good middle power type relations with and we have very good space collaboration with and we could be doing a lot more with that. Of course. And then, Adam, to bring it down to you as well, um, with your company, Gilmore Space um, Technologies as well, what are your objectives um, for your company uh, moving forward? What have you achieved in the, in the past and all that? And how would you say that would more or less, does it align with um, what the... Australia as a nation, as a government wants to do as well? Like talk to us about what you what you guys are doing on your end. Sure. So we're very focused on building a launch vehicle that um, takes small satellites into space. We think this is the, the, the biggest trend in the market for the foreseeable future from a revenue point of view. And Duncan talked about, you know, a hundred thousand small satellites going up into space in the next 10 years, even if it's a quarter of that, it's still a massive opportunity for small launch vehicles. Uh, So, you know, we're venture capital backed, you know, they believe in the story as well. Um, We're also starting to work on satellite buses because the other big gap we see in the market is a lot of people are developing sensors and they're not developing the satellite bus that goes around that. Um, So we want to be a little bit more integrated. I think it matches very, very closely with what the government is looking for. I think to be a middle power, you have to have access to space capability. I think it's also important that you can make satellites as well and not little ones, medium-sized ones, you know, like 100, 200, 300 kilogram type satellites with real capability. And I think that's just around the corner. I think there's there's quite a few companies in Australia that are working on that. And, um, you know, we're going to start launching next year. Um, some bigger satellites will go up in 2023. I think it's going to be a very, very exciting couple of years. And it aligns, I think, very closely with what the nation is looking for, what the government is looking for. Uh, and I, I think we'll have a much more um, powerful is probably not the right, right word, but I'm going to use it anyway, negotiating point at the table if we can if we've got our own access to space and we're playing in the field, so to speak. Especially um, moving forward as well, in the last couple of years, we've seen the um, the, the new, a new term of uh, new space coming across. And for Adam, for yourself, have you, with, the, with this term, when did you first come across this term? I don't know when I first heard about new space, but it was definitely when I, you know, was looking at starting a space company. I think the philosophy behind it is to not follow all the rules of of what is called old space, which is very um, dictated by space agencies with very, very strict and formal requirements. Uh, So, you know, the concept of new space is, you know, you want to get to a point of technology development, you just get there as fast as you can. Obviously, you've got to focus on safety, but in terms of following every bit of the way, of, of, of a European space agency or a NASA, 
you don't have to do it anymore. And, you, you know, you see the example, the best example is SpaceX, you know, how, how quickly they develop launch vehicles. And, um, you know, they're basically going through a turbocharged systems engineering process. That's really what it comes down to, just going through the systems engineering process three, four, ten times quicker than, than usual um, and, and not being afraid to fail. You know, one of the biggest differences, I think, between new space and old space, and, you know, when I talk to people that work for old space, they're very, very afraid of failure. You know, if they're developing a launch vehicle, they absolutely don't want it to fail on its first flight. Whereas, you know, a lot of new space providers will say, I, I expect the first one will fail and maybe the second one, but I'm going to learn a lot from that. And I'm going to move really quickly. And by the time I do the third one, I know a lot and they'll be successful ever since. So I think it's really a mind change about accepting a lot more risk um, and, and moving a lot quicker. And, and it seems to be working. I, I think in the next five or 10 years, new space will just destroy old space. I think all the old space companies are going to wither and die. Uh, Jack, I, I just um, add, uh, agree with everything that that Adam says. I, I have to say, I, I'm a little bit worried sometimes about the emphasis in Australia on or a bias towards um, big established multinational companies involved in space. And the fact is, from my perspective, those big multinational companies can look after themselves. They they don't need a lot of facilitation necessarily. The best place to look for innovation is among startups, and that's what we need to encourage. And if we encourage innovation through startups, then the big multinational companies will come looking anyway. So, so as I say, I'm a little bit worried about the bias towards big multinational mm. companies. If I could add to it too that um – because new space doesn't really include those big multinationals, although, you know, SpaceX is a, is a very big player. But the term new space kind of goes back to the early 2000s when, you know, up until that point, it was only states that had the economic and technological wherewithal to access space, to have space programs, um, and even to then put out tenders to some commercial companies to assist their programs. And then as of the early 2000s, you started to see companies being able to develop, as Adam said, their own technologies a lot faster. They weren't dependent on taxpayers' money to pay for the research and development end of things, so they could move a lot faster. And we started to see commercial actors providing things like Earth observation data, telecommunications, TV broadcasting, so these kind of more actually quite traditional um, space services. And then we saw some disruptors. So people look to SpaceX or, um, or Blue Origin or these kind of bigger companies and say that's new space. But actually they have been on running on the coattails of the, the shift in new space and just they have even more economic wherewithal to push things a lot faster. And it brings with it some huge positives, which is the pace at which the technology moves, the fact that it then forces the space agencies and the regulatory bodies to think about how to support the commercial industry, but also ensure that it's aligning with their policies and strategies. Um, but the challenges are we now have a lot and, and another positive is, you know, the, the cheaper access to space. So now many, many more countries can participate in the space sector. And that brings with it the challenges, all of the politics of those countries. And it also brings with it an increase in the congestion and um, competitiveness and contested nature of space. So, so it's a great thing that there's more access. It's a great thing that there's been a disruptor in these old models of thinking and regulation, but there's huge challenges that come with that. And with one of those challenges, um, I was going to ask uh, for all of you, um, especially with like this whole, you know, seeing a massive amount of uh, startups, you're seeing a whole bunch of billionaires now starting their own sort of uh, space companies and all that. At the moment, do you see, do you feel as though the uh, barriers to entry are too high, especially for people who have these incredibly innovative ideas as to, you know, how to um, better understand and um, increase our capabilities in space but they just don't have the funds to do it do you think it's too high do you think it's okay like what are your what are your thoughts on those ones all right can i jump in there because i think um i think one of the things we do have to do better in is to put more funding into in venture funding investor funding into into early stage uh, space companies um, my experience with venture capital in Australia is they like to wait until you are well on the way to developing your product before they come in. Um, you know, if you have a look at the US and Europe, they're, you know, 
the investor community is a much much more uh, happier to come in at very early stages. Um, you know, we're starting to see some accelerators in Australia, like uh, Moonshot and a few others, and that's that's a really good start because you know sometimes the first fifty or hundred thousand dollars gets you to a place where an investor might start paying attention, but you know, for a lot of other things, it's more like a million to two million dollars. Space isn't cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than it was. Mm. I wouldn't say that the barriers to entry are too high. Mm. There, there may be concern about regulatory aspects and the impact that regu- regulation has on on startups. There are some important some important issues that regulators need to um, need to apply to any space activities. Uh, and the important thing about that is is to apply it in in the most appropriate way to to achieve what we need for the public benefit. So, for example, um, space debris mitigation. Um, you could you could regulate in a in a way that requires copious amounts of documents from from um, from startups that would make it very difficult and create even more barriers to entry or you could um, have something that is more sort of purpose driven if you like what's what is it that we're trying to achieve rather than being very prescriptive for example about you have to provide this detail and this detail and this detail this is what we're trying to achieve and there are different regulatory cultures around the world in in that respect but generally I would say that the barriers to entry uh, are not too high I think it's appropriate that in this industry, there there are significant barriers to entry. I don't think that everybody is in the right position to to be a participant in the space industry. I think you need to have a certain amount of funding to start with. As, as Adam's discussed, you need, need to have a certain amount of expertise and access to, to resources and, and um, premises. Um, and th- there's a bunch of other things you need, and I think that's appropriate. The other thing too is I absolutely agree with with what you just said, Duncan, and at the same time we need to think about the space sector as being quite broad. So it's not, um, you know, what Adam's doing with Gilmore is really exciting, but launch is only one very small part of the space sector Um, and it's not even necessarily something that Australia needs to be a world leader at, right? Um, I know that that Gilmore is keen to be, but my point is that there's so many other things that we are already great at. We do, our geography is fantastic for doing a lot of tracking and listening. We can provide incredible data for space situational awareness, which is the ability to track all of that traffic and debris and try and avoid collisions and try and identify if something's gone wrong, whether that was a bit of debris or whether that was actual harmful interference by a nefarious actor. We can provide a lot of important information to that. We do world-class data processing. So these Earth observation satellites, Australia doesn't own any, as in government ones, but we do world-class data processing and analysis of the data that comes back from those satellites to turn it into a product that can be used, that we can use it as a map, we can you know, use it to help farmers, um, all those applications we mentioned earlier. That data processing is a whole technology sector within the space sector that we do very well. Um, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of other things that we can contribute to in terms of communications, in terms of applications to the civil sector, which doesn't necessarily involve launch. And there are many startups that could be supported across across the sector. Um, and the regulatory environment needs to be aware of that. We're not just talking about one kind of activity. The, the recent bill that Home Affairs, I think, is likely to, to pass, in fact, um, and may have passed by the time the, the, the summit takes place, um, includes the space technology sector as part of a critical infrastructure. And what that means is it's now um, protected, but it also places a huge administrative burden on those companies because they now have to provide an enormous amount of data and information to the government about um, ownership, investment, you know, who their employees are because the government wants to track whether there's the potential for foreign interference in those critical technologies, whether they might be targeted, how to protect them. And if you're asking every single space startup who might be doing something that has actually nothing to do with our national security, but is providing something across that wider spectrum of the space sector, that in itself can be a barrier. So we, we need to think about the whole regulatory environment. It sounds as though, um, especially coming from both of you as well, um, congestion in space is sounding as though it's uh, 
a very, very big issue. And like, I think a very interesting point that you raised that these barriers to entry, they may not be too high, but they're, they're, they're appropriate to avoid this, this risk. Can you guys give us a bit of an overview as to what you think, well, not what you think, what these risks actually are in regards to congestion um, in space? It might just be helpful to talk about the different kinds of orbits to understand why some are more um, strategically or commercially contested. Um, so low Earth orbit is anywhere between 100 and 1600 kilometers. And that's where most of the traffic is. That's where most of the congestion is. Um, that's where SpaceX's Starlink program is. Um, then you have um, MEO or mid-Earth orbit, um, which is at about 20,000 kilometers, which is where the GPS, the position navigation and timing satellites are. And then you have geostationary orbit or GEO, which is about 36,000 kilometers from Earth. And that's where the uh, satellites are orbiting at the same rate that the Earth is turning. So the satellite appears to be stationary above one point in Australia. For instance, if you were to look up, you would see it. And that's good for telecommunications, some telecommunications and, and TV broadcasting and that kind of thing. Um, but Duncan, can you say more about why GEO is strategically such an important orbit? Um, so the, the geosynchronous or, or geostationary, so geostationary is a particular form of a geosynchronous orbit. Geostationary happens to be on the equator. Um, so uh, that orbit means you're above, as Cassandra said, above the one place on Earth at all times. It means that you can constantly communicate with that satellite without having to change antennas or, or anything like that. You, you can do direct-to-home broadcasting, for example, which is, which is very valuable. Um, and from that distance, you can see an, a third, at least a third of the Earth, if you if you had intelligent surveillance and reconnaissance satellites out there. It's a particularly valuable orbit. The International Telecommunications Union is the context in which states come together to allocate frequencies, and because of the importance of frequency to space use, one way of allocating that is to say, well, if you're this close to another satellite, then you have to use another frequency. You have to use a different frequency. So you can sort of say, well, you have to occupy only this slot in the orbit. Uh, and so different states have allocations of different slots in, in geo orbit. Uh, and whoever gets to use that slot is, is, has valuable real estate in a way. So the numbers that, um, that Duncan mentioned before in terms of the increase in the number of launches over time, um, at the moment, my guesstimate is there's about 3,600, maybe 3,700 operational satellites orbiting the Earth. But that number needs to be updated every couple of weeks at the moment. Um, and that's a guesstimate. Um, on top of that, there's about 3,000 dead satellites that are orbiting Earth as debris. And on top of that, there's about 128 million pieces of debris that goes right down to a centimetre. We think, we don't know for sure because we can't track it all. And when I say we, I mean globally. There's no body that is responsible for tracking all of that or responsible for space traffic management. Um, my understanding is there's a risk of collision um, uh, or actually a couple of months ago, my understanding was there's a risk of collision or there's a conjunction of about one kilometre 540 times a day in low Earth orbit, which is where most of our traffic is. So these things are orbiting in low Earth orbit at seven kilometers a second, that's 10 times faster than a bullet. So something the size of a fleck of paint can be lethal to another satellite. And if, if there's a conjunction at about a kilometer, that is, there's a risk of collision. It doesn't mean they will collide, it means there's a risk. I just read recently that, that given the rate at which um, star, um, Starlink is being launched, SpaceX's um, mega constellation of satellites, the rate at which they're launching sort of 40 to 60 satellites every couple of weeks at the moment means that that conjunction um, risk has increased down to um, less than a kilometre. I think it's now 500 metres or so and that the risk is um, in the order of sort of six or 700 times a day. So that gives you an idea. And and we can't, you if you understand, if you know that there's a um, conjunction and a risk of collision and you're dependent on bodies like U.S. Space Command, the Eurospace, European Space Agency, and then a bunch of um, interested individuals who are literally providing this data as open source data, 
to figure out whether there might be a risk of collision and is the risk great enough that you want to use some of your very, very precious fuel to change ever so slightly the orbital trajectory of your spacecraft um, with the risk it might then have another conjunction with another object, it becomes very complicated. Um, and so that's a risk in terms of the business model for the companies or, or countries owning these satellites. It's a risk in terms of this, the services we depend on. And we, and we don't have a proper governance regime for that. There's also the con congestion in respect to the electromagnetic spectrum as well, which, um, you know, it, it, it might seem like the electromagnetic spectrum is just out there and the waves are everywhere in, in the atmosphere, but, but it is a limited resource. Um, you can't have two satellites in close proximity trying to transmit on the same frequency because they will jam one another, essentially. And so there has to be allocation of, of frequencies. And the electromagnetic spectrum is is getting close to saturation. There are some very clever engineers who work out different ways to use the spectrum. Uh, but the world is starting to seek other solutions such as optical communication, so use of lasers, for example. But there have already been disputes and even disputes that have led to coercive activities between states in respect of access to frequency. So especially in uh, geostationary Earth orbit, um, the those orbits and the use of spectrum associated with those orbits is particularly valuable. And there have been instances of states jamming one another deliberately in, in those orbits associated with disputes about who gets to use that orbit. And also states moving satellites into other people's slots when their right to do so is is open to question. So so yes, there's the electromagnetic spectrum is very congested as well. And I think your um, conversation about uh, interference and stuff like that, I would love to touch base on that mm. in just a short moment. Um, with Adam especially, and I want to give your opinion on this as well, not opinion. Um, just out of how it works, I guess. Um, do you want to allude a bit more about what that SpaceX um, Starlink is it? Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so it's a, it's a constellation of small satellites. They're roughly a meter by a meter by a meter, and um, they weigh around about 180 kilograms, and they are used to, to communicate broadband internet down to the earth and back. Uh, and so... For them to work effectively, you need a lot of them in space, zipping around all, all the parts of the Earth. Like I think the Starlink satellite is going to be, the network is going to be in 56 different orbital planes. So you could think of an orbital plane like a highway in space. So they'll be zipping around and they intersect each other as well. So 56 different planes. I'm sure all alarm bells are going off between you two as well about that. Do you want to allude about your opinion about that a bit more? I was just going to add, so there are sources of conflict that arise potentially from the orbits that are being occupied by these satellites. So Adam referred to the possibility of a land grab and whether this is a land grab. And also, as I referred to before, the use of the electromagnetic spectrum. But there's also the question of what these satellites actually do. Now, from one um, perspective, what they offer is is fantastic. Imagine that you could travel overseas. You wouldn't have to change your internet or mobile service provider no matter where you went. You'd had one service provider. That's what global broadband potentially offers. And, and um, you know, at really impressive speeds, and, you know, speeds that a lot of people in Australia are not getting right now. Um, but Imagine also that instead of getting your internet through terrestrial means in very centralised uh, countries where maybe access to the internet is limited, you can look up and get it. And suddenly you have access to a whole lot of things that you no longer have access to. And you can imagine the disruption that that might cause as well. It might be helpful also to think a bit about the... Um the legal framework for all of this. So um, I mentioned the 1967 Outer Space Treaty is the cornerstone treaty for all activities in space. There's there's four other treaties, two of which are relevant to this. One is the Liability Convention, which says the state remains liable under international law for every single activity in outer space. 
whether that's governmental or non-governmental, so including these commercial activities. And the state is responsible for authorizing and continually supervising that activities. And that's why we have national space licensing laws in place. That's the state saying, well, if I'm going to be responsible in international law, I need to put in place rules about what kind of activities I'm going to, as a state, regulate and allow uh, and have oversight over. And the Registration Convention is another important treaty which obliges the launching state which could be the state from whose territory the launch uh, happens or the state that launches even though it's from another territory or a state that procures a launch on another territory. So it's actually several states that fall into that definition. They are obliged, so they all have that liability and they're obliged to register both in a national registry and with the UN every single launch that takes place. And that's an attempt to kind of assist that space situational awareness so that we know who's launching what, where it is, what it's doing, more or less. So military satellites don't have to divulge what they're doing, but we need to know what orbital trajectory they're in, what frequency they're using, and what state they are linked to. Um, the UN says that there's about an 85% compliance with that obligation. So 15% of these hundreds and hundreds of launches are not being registered internationally. And even the ones that are, there's about a four-year lag. So if... Um, SpaceX is launching every two weeks and there's a four-year four lag on correct, up-to-date, accurate information about all of, these, um, all of these objects in space, where they're moving and what they're doing. We have a huge gap in knowledge about, about what's going on. So that kind of adds to the congestion problem as well. And when we come to these mega constellations, um, so the other thing the Outer Space Treaty says is that there's no national appropriation in space. No state can claim territory in space. And therefore, neither can any commercial entity because they operate under the jurisdiction of a state. So no one can own things in space. But if you, by, by default, kind of de facto use up those orbital slots or fill up these commercially valuable or, or for security purposes, very important orbital slots and the, um, the radio frequencies that, that Duncan keeps referring to, then it's kind of like a land grab in space. So you're not saying you own it, but you're denying anyone else access to it. Yep, absolutely. I totally agree with that. One of my next questions is actually going to be about uh, treaties and legal frameworks in space, but you've pretty much covered that so eloquently. Um, so I kind of want to talk a bit more about um, militarization of, of space. Um, it is such a... When you, when you first talk about it, you're thinking about um, in science fiction of like death rays and, you know, all like these um, soldiers in space and stuff like that. But that's not really the case, I would imagine. So can you guys talk about what mil the militarization of space actually sort of looks like? Yes, yes. So um, space has been militarized from the very beginning. Um, the Nazi V2 rockets were developed in World War That They went around 400 kilometres, um, several hundred kilometres in altitude. So arguably they went through space. But the first satellite, of course, um, was uh, in 1957 with Sputnik. That was in part a project of the Russian Ministry of Defence. So um, space has been militarised from the beginning. But you're right, it would be, there is a risk of, of over-imagining, if you like, what militarization of space uh, looks like. We're, we're talking about intelligence surveillance reconnaissance satellites, communication satellites, position navigation and timing satellites. And these are all important um, for the uh, the military to do what it does. And it's also important to real to think broadly about what the military does. So, you know, the, the, the military is um, preparing for war and that's why these things are important. But uh, just as, you know, you're involved in Australian Crisis Simulation Summit, a crisis is not always in existence. In fact, it's the exception. Um, the vast majority of the time is is relatively normal and we're talking about, you know, disruptions from the normal. Um, Defence is preparing for war, but a lot of the time it's it's contributing to humanitarian aid and disaster relief, for example, um, and and also military intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, position navigation and timing and comms are part of the infrastructure 
that facilitates strategic stability in the world. Um, so that's that's important. So there is a risk of overstating what militarization of outer space means, but quite often when people think about militarization of outer space, they may be speaking, uh, thinking about weaponization of outer space, which involves things like I referred to earlier, hit-to-kill missiles, um, directed energy weapons, electronic warfare, use of cyber, um, high-altitude nuclear detonations in outer space. So, so th that is happening, and, and that needs to be acknowledged as well. There are developments of these, these space capabilities as well. I guess those two things go hand in hand. So I always make exactly the distinction that you just made, Duncan, between militarization and weaponization, because I think it's really important to keep those two things clear um, and to acknowledge that space is an important operational domain for military activities, both in peacetime and in war. Um, the concern for, for weaponization, though, does go a little bit hand in hand with an increased militarization. And, you know, there was a lot of um, laughter around the world when the former president of the US announced this idea of Space Force because people thought it was just some crazy idea. Um, but it had been debated in the US for over 10 years. It gained traction um, in the last sort of 12 to 24 months. And we now have US Space Force as a separate armed force in the US. Um, but they are also not about sending astronauts into space. So there was a terrible comedy show called Space Force, which <laughs> was all about boots on the moon, and it was everything that Space Force is not. Um, uh, so Space Force has taken over what US a lot of what US Air Force Space Command was previously doing, though not all of it, and they deal with acquisition of those um, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance um, satellites, um, and communications and the, and the things Duncan just talked us through. Um, and But they also are there because the US perceives there to be a need to have a force focused solely on space. So it's not just about gathering your workforce and centralizing your capabilities. It's about responding to a perceived need. And that's because the rhetoric out of the US is that China and Russia have been trying to weaponize space and they needed to respond. But in setting up US Space Force, China and Russia have responded saying, well, the US is threatening the stability of space. We need to ramp up our programs. And we're seeing an escalation, which is very concerning. We're seeing a lot of middle powers who've set up their own space command, or in Australia, we're going to have our own space division. So that's not a separate armed force. It, it falls within the existing armed forces. Um, Canada, France, India, Japan, the UK, and now Australia have all in the last couple of years set up their own internal space command or space division. And that's a very wise and prudent thing for us to have done um, to join the ranks of countries doing that because we need to centralise our workforce and capabilities. We need to be making strategic decisions um, from a centralised understanding and we need to have our Air Vice Marshal, Kath Roberts, who will be heading that, able to speak to her counterparts in our in our um, allied and partner countries. So it's a wise thing to do, but we need to be very cautious that we're not taking part in that escalatory rhetoric um, because that is what will raise the risk of conflict in space, not just militarization of space, which is a fait accompli, it's just part of the space environment, but rather what we do with that and whether we are using those military capabilities uh, in space to support stability or whether it's being used as a way to kind of pick a fight in another domain. Mm -hmm. And with the um, with the rise with the like you were saying before about how um, with the announcement of space wars, it kind of took a bit of a back turn, especially for China and Russia and all that. Do you think that the space force has genuinely risked the stability of peace that we do see in space, and we're seeing this? change in what we're using the space domain for like you were saying before you were saying how um before it was pretty much like used for everyday life and military operations just like for satellites and all that but are we seeing um a change of perspective on of how nations are going to utilize space moving forward i i would love to hear duncan's thoughts on this but but my thoughts are not not just having space force in and of itself but the doctrine that is coming compared with Space Force, that concerns me. So space, since the mid-90s, since the first Iraq or Gulf War, I should say, um, that some people point to that as the so-called first space war because it was the first time that space capabilities gave 
um, the military is such a key advantage, um, much more precise targeting with the weapons they were using, which means you can then lower collateral damage and the unwanted impacts of war. Communications, you know, it, it just was a game changer. And ever since then, space has been a key capability for militaries during wartime, but also during peacetime for deterrence and for all these kinds of things. So it can contribute to stability. And I don't think having Space Force changes that. I'm very concerned about the doctrine and rhetoric that has come with Space Force. And I think much of it is informed uh, or developed by people who are ill-informed uh, about how space is used, about how we all depend on it, about it is quite a unique domain if we compare it to other domains that the military operates in. Um, the use of, you know, the US calls space a war fighting domain. They're the only country to do so. I am extremely concerned that they do so because it goes against the Outer Space Treaty, which says exclusively peaceful purposes. It goes against all of these space arms control initiatives and particularly the UN General Assembly resolution, which is talking about responsible behaviours. I would say it is an irresponsible behaviour to have a military doctrine that calls space a warfighting domain. So I have huge concerns about the doctrine, um, which is not a permanent thing that can be shifted could be shifted over time to go back to a more stable understanding of, you know, historically strategic restraint was the shared understanding. We all need to restrain ourselves in space because we all need to have continued access to space. And we've moved away from that. Um, I, you know, and that again, that maybe that's a role that middle powers can play to temper that that escalation. Can I jump in a bit? It, it could be a deterrent as well. I mean, I, I'd love to agree with you about that, but the problem is as soon as you develop weapon platforms that rely on space for their operation, you're opening yourself up to say, okay, you take away that capability, you take away my capability. And, you know, the armed forces of the world have been operating in that environment since the Gulf War, since the first Gulf War, you know, GPS guided stuff, you know, more than that. So it's just up there. It's not far away. So I don't think you can put your head in the sand and say, look, if there's going to be a conflict, everyone will leave their things alone. I mean, you know, I'm not a, a studier of warfare, but I've done a bit of study. You know, it is strategic to destroy people's ports and airfields. You know, that's kind of like the first phase of any major peer-to-peer -peer conflict is you get rid of all of the assets. You know, so it's not inconceivable to think that our, um, you know, our opponents will take away all of our assets in space. So as much as I'd love to keep space civilian, and that's my goal, you know, I want to make money out of space and create jobs and we can all live happily ever after and it's all great. I think you've got to have a deterrent to say, look, if you mess with my stuff, I'm going to mess with yours. It's almost like a mutually assured destruction policy. Absolutely. Um, and I think I think you put your finger on it that it's not about keeping space just civilian. It's it's military as well. It's a military domain. It's a strategic domain. But calling it a warfighting domain puts at risk your business model. So you, as part of the commercial space sector, have an interest in keeping space stable and safe and Absolutely. accessible. So calling it a warfighting domain the deterrence piece is also very important, but you can deter an adversary by targeting them in another domain. And even if you respond in space, it, so I've heard some people say the next, the, the first shots of the next war are going to be fired in space. Well, as Duncan's told us, there's already stuff going on in space in terms of jamming each other, threatening each other's capabilities, being able to take each other's eyes and ears out temporarily. That's not the same as firing a shot in space. And I think we need to we need to think much more realistic. This is not about Star Wars, right? Um, so there's no doubt that space will continue to be a part of warfare, but having a doctrine that calls it a warfighting domain does something very different. Yes, I agree that it's a, a question of emphasis in in, in doctrine and other uh, publications. Um, keep in mind that warfare has existed in the land, air and maritime domains for a long time. Uh, and there are land forces and there are air forces and there are naval forces. Um, it would be Correct. You could say that those domains are warfighting domains, but you don't hear that said um, about those other domains. And the reason you don't hear it said is it's unnecessarily inflammatory. Uh, so originally the idea behind calling space a warfighting domain was to 
cause a change in internal culture because uh, in the past, the perception was that space supported the other domains. It wasn't something that um, was itself an operational domain. So the, the use of the phrase warfighting domain was an internal message saying, you need to think of yourselves as operators and warfighters if you're involved in space. But it is a poor message externally. And there are better messages that we could say externally. And, and, and I would say that the better message is far more about responsible use of space. Now, if you are a hard-nosed military strategist, the fact is that if you use that language, responsible use of space, then you can still develop similar capabilities, but it's a question of emphasis. Because the fact is that if you say you support responsible use of space, then in the international community, there is no police force. Who is going to enforce international, uh, who's going to enforce responsible use of space? It implies that the international community, everyone in the international community in Australia, including Australia, needs to be prepared to shoulder some of that burden, whatever that burden might involve. I think we're going to have to start wrapping it up soon. So I kind of want to talk about more about Australia's role in all this, um, mm. especially in regards to this increased concern with weaponization and et cetera, et cetera. We alluded beforehand about Australia's role as a middle power, um, especially in the space sector as well as sort of like a mediator, but we just don't have the capabilities. With that, what would you want to see or what needs to be done for Australia to uh, obtain this position as a mediator um, moving forward as well, what needs to be done? So I guess being a, a space middle power for me is not just about being a mediator. So it's not it's not necessarily or not only about being a, po a peace broker when there might be greater powers competing. It's also about being exemplary and particularly around responsible behaviour. So there's a reason that that terminology is so important. Um, it's embedded in that UN General Assembly resolution. It's a, it's a term that actually our own military has used for some time uh, and, you know, and I've seen it come out of US Space Force Command again recently, probably in response to concerns about calling it a space of warfighting domain. So we can be exemplary actors and that can make us effective middle powers uh, in terms of how we are supporting our commercial space sector while also regulating them, but supporting them as well. In terms of how we are connecting the dots between our commercial space sector, our, our scientific research, our defense and military and national security interests and our, and our space diplomacy. If we're connecting all of those dots and being exemplary actors in that way, then, then we have, as Adam mentioned before, we can be a powerful seat at the table if we say, look, we have our own space industry, look at all these great capabilities we have, these great technologies, these great actors, look at how we support them and look at how we do it responsibly if we think about space debris mitigation and if we think about long-term sustainability and look at how we connect the dots with our defence and national security. Um, just by being that kind of actor and then increasing our um, increasing the way we put space on the agenda with our partnerships across the Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific, and particularly you mentioned our next-door neighbours before, our smaller next-door neighbours who are very key partners for us if we were doing some capacity building with them that would support their ability also to partake but would also support our interests um, because it's in our interest to have them also be capable actors and be at the seat of the table um, and, you know, keep on putting space on the agenda with India, for instance. We have a really important relationship through the Quad and space has been mentioned but not really put on the agenda there. So where we have um, Japan, India, the US and Australia having really important discussions. So keeping on putting space on the agenda where we're having other discussions around climate change or, or COVID or trade, whatever these other things are, because space is so linked, as we keep saying to all those areas, I think that's... I think that's the ways in which that's kind of the low hanging fruit in which we can be an effective middle space power. We have already talked about uh, the dependence of society, including Australian society on space. We've talked about the burgeoning uh, space industry in Australia. So it's very much in Australia's interest to have ongoing safe access to space. You might say assured access to space as a middle power um, Australia is not in a position to strong arm its way into 
you know, assured access to space. Australia's always been supportive of a stable rules-based global order. So that is the means of uh, having assured access to space. Uh, so Australia needs to be heavily involved in um, the elements of assured access to space and responsible use of space. Adam, how about yourself? Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I agree with that. I think, but I think you've got to have the tech as well. I think you get a much stronger seat at the table when you're going to space and you're acting responsibly in space. You know, it's. I think it's. It's a bit of a stretch to to sit at the table when we're not sending anything ourselves to space and tell them all to behave. But if we are and we're behaving. It's a lot easier to say, hey, we can do it. We can do it profitably, successfully. We're all happy campers. You guys should all do it as well. I think that's the next step for us. To be a true middle power is we've got to take, we've got to have access. We've got to have our own launch vehicles, our own satellites. We've got to send them to space and we've got to do it responsibly. Cassandra, thank you very much for joining us. Duncan and Adam as well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, really enjoy all your insights you've had for us. Um, it's been wonderful talking to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. pleasure. That is all we have time for here today on the ACSS podcast. Join us next time as we'll discuss the regional setting of Asia-Pacific security. Bye for now.